There is a lifetime's worth of study in the Gospels alone. And the best thing that you can give your time to is simply to look at Jesus and understand that wherever you are in your study of the Savior, you are not there yet. This is Timeless Truth Today, and I'm your host, Matt Williams. Welcome to part five of Living the Assured Life, a study in 1 John from Pastor Paul Twiss. Pastor's text is 1 John chapter 5, verses 6 through 12. This is the very first of three letters from John the Apostle to churches around the Mediterranean late in the first century. The Apostle is in a serious state of mind in this letter having heard that false teaching has been creeping in from various sources, some questioning Christ's humanity, others urging involvement in secret societies. Pastor Paul gives large attention to the person of Jesus Christ, recommending we take on this worthy study as a lifetime pursuit to increasingly know the person of Christ. You might respond, well, I've read all four gospels during my life. Doesn't that do enough to equip me for whatever may be coming? Here's part five of Living the Assured Life. Having been taught seemingly for some time, teaching that was contrary to the foundational teaching of the gospel, they had been robbed of their joy, they had been robbed of their confidence in Christ. As I've worked through 1 John, I have found myself many times simply giving thanks to God, that in his good providence, he has placed us in a situation where the gospel is clear. Give thanks this evening that God has led you to a situation where the gospel is proclaimed with clarity, where you don't have to wonder about the God-man, the Savior. It's not a given There's no promises to that effect. In fact, if you look at the trajectory of the New Testament, I would say that quite possibly it could be otherwise for you. We begin all the way at the beginning after the gospel narrative with the account of Acts. And and in Acts, though there are issues as the church is birthed, false teaching is not one of them. False teachers haven't yet crept into the congregation and distorted the gospel. Paul says it's coming, but it's not there then. They're good times. And then you move on in the chronology of the New Testament, and it's no accident that as you get to the end of the New Testament, the issue over and over again is false teachers. Think about 2 Peter and Jude and here 1 John and 2 and 3 John. It seems like after the birth and the establishment of the church, then the issue becomes towards the end a distortion of the gospel from within. People getting into God's church. And so it really is a point for praise, for continual praise that God in his kindness has led you to a point where you may have confidence concerning the gospel. You can walk away from this church rejoicing that you know certainly who Jesus Christ is. And as John poses the question of whether you've got Jesus, one thing you can't say is that I don't really know who he is. 
Now, there is a second implication that flows from this, and that is simply to, to follow the logic of the false teachers and understand that it never serves you well to short-circuit Christ. If you think about what the false teachers have done, if, if, if this is the biblical Christ, what they were eager to present was something less than. They were short-circuiting Christ in presenting half a picture or a distorted picture. And the result is that the believers who received that teaching had lost their joy. John writes, chapter 1, verse 4, we're writing for fullness of joy. I want to restore your joy in the Lord. How does he do it with one of the most Christological letters in all of the New Testament? Let me give you more of Christ, because I know, says John, the more that I present the biblical Christ, the more you will be joy-filled. The biblical teaching is always that your joy is a direct result of Christ's glory. Now, that's against our flesh. That's against our inclination. We believe that our joy is a direct result of our glory. The more we elevate ourselves, the more we glory in ourselves, the more joy-filled we'll be. In fact, the truth is that will bring you utter misery. What John says and what all of Scripture says is that your joy is a direct result of Christ's glory. And these readers had been presented an incomplete and a distorted Christ and lost their joy. But the principle extends beyond those issues that might be considered heretical. What I'm saying is that we all have a responsibility to seek out more of Christ, to see more of Christ, understanding that as we do so, we will only ever nourish our souls and find more joy. Become a student of Christ. We have such a, a nuance and a complex, a wonderfully rich picture of the Savior all the way through the Scriptures from beginning to end. And one of the most worthy things that you could ever give your time to is simply to look at Christ. One of the best classes I ever took in seminary was the Christology class. The reading was great, the lectures were great, the assignments were great, all of that good. But what really made the class is hours upon hours of looking at Jesus. If you are lacking joy, if you're lacking confidence, if you're not flourishing in the Christian life, look at Christ. Consider just by way of example the fact that we have four gospel portraits of the Savior. Just putting aside for one moment the Old Testament testimony concerning Christ and the epistles and revelation, just think about the gospels. Da Vinci painted one portrait of a lady who we don't really know that much about. And every year, millions travel to see the Mona Lisa. I've been a few times. It's really quite small. It's difficult to see because there's so many people crowded around it. And normally, I end up looking at the people, looking at the painting. Because they just stood there for hours. And God, in his providence, in his kindness, has given us four portraits of the greatest man that ever lived. And they're all different. Consider the Gospel of Matthew, where he presents Christ as the coming king of Israel. This is your king, he says to the Jewish people. And he preaches the Sermon on the Mount to say, this is what it is to live under my rule. And yet they reject him as their king. And then you turn to Mark, and now he's putting a different nuance on Jesus' life. He's saying, this one is the suffering servant. This one is the lowly, despised, suffering servant of Isaiah 53. And that's why in Mark's gospel, Jesus says, I did not come to be served, but to serve you and give my life as a ransom for many. I am the lamb that was led to the slaughter, and open not my mouth. 
And then you turn to Luke's gospel and now we get a different vantage point of the same God-man. Here is the man. Luke presents him as the second Adam. The genealogy in Luke chapter 3 takes us all the way back to Adam for a reason. To say this is the one that has come to renew humanity. He will usher in the new creation. Which is why in Luke's gospel you get so many emphases on the healing ministry of Christ. Because every picture is a picture into the new creation that this one will bring about. And then we turn to John's gospel and we get a fourth angle on this same man. The angle being that this one is God. John's gospel is a different beast altogether and he's saying this one is God. He has come from another world and if you want to be part of him, you need to be born from above also. There is a lifetime's worth of study in the gospels alone. And the best thing that you can give your time to is simply to look at Jesus and understand that wherever you are in your study of the Savior, you are not there yet. You haven't exhausted him. There is more to learn of him. There is more to have of him. There is one sense in which when John says, have you got Jesus, the answer of all of us is not yet. I'm still learning. Don't short circuit Christ. Now John gives us this historical witness, the water and the blood, the the witness that the gospels preserve for us. He was the God man from beginning to end. He's exactly who he said he was. He is the perfect savior. But it might be that one of these nervous believers who for some time now has had their faith undermined by false teaching, it might be that they say, can you just tell me how I can be absolutely sure that he is the savior. And John goes on and he summarizes his answer with one word, the word being testimony. Look at the text again. He says, the spirit is the one who testifies because the spirit is truth. There are three that testify, the spirit, the water, and the blood. These agree. If we receive the testimony of men, the testimony of God is greater for this is the testimony of God that he has testified concerning his son. Whoever believes in the son of God has the testimony in himself. If he doesn't believe he's made God a liar because he's not believed in the testimony that God has born. This is the testimony that God has given us eternal life. Some 10 times John uses either the noun or the verb of testimony. Now this is very important because testimony, the testimony idea again comes from John's gospel. When you study John's gospel, it's a frequent word, and it often, not always, but often occurs within the context of conflict. When the word testimony is used in John's gospel, it often comes up when there's a conflict of worldviews, specifically between Jesus and the Jews. The Jews in John's gospel are the antagonists, they're the main enemies of Jesus, And when they clash, as they often do in John's narrative, the word testimony appears as if to say, which testimony are you going to pick? Which testimony are you going to believe? And here again, it occurs in 1 John at the very place where John seems to be leading us down two paths. We're getting to the point where he's going to present to us two options. And again, the question is already confronting us, which one are we going to believe? We begin with the testimony of the Holy Spirit, verse 6. We can believe it because the Holy Spirit is God. God never lies, and so this testimony is true. 
And then he goes on to say, they agree. The three testify and are in agreement, the spirit, the water, and the blood. This is not a reference to the Trinity, as has been suggested previously in years gone by, but simply John is saying that the historical witness in the Gospels matches the internal witness of the Holy Spirit. He is inferencing here one of the wonderful ministries of the Holy Spirit. It would be a fascinating study to to work through the New Testament and look at the various ministries of the Holy Spirit. One of the richest ministries of the Spirit is that he proclaims Christ to us. Jesus says, I'm going to send the helper, the Holy Spirit. He will take what is mine and declare it to you. The Holy Spirit's on the way and he will declare to you the things concerning me. This is another point for which we give much thanks. We have the Holy Spirit inside of us. And this invisible, present, ongoing ministry is one that matches word for word, step for step, the external, historical, objective testimony of the Gospels. The Holy Spirit meets the Word of God and you're in the middle. And if it wasn't for that witness of the Holy Spirit, this word would mean nothing to you. An unbeliever can pick up this word and read it and be entirely unaffected. The words mean nothing. They don't come to life for him because the spirit is not meeting the word with the believer in the middle, with the reader in the middle. When God works in you to bring you into faith, he gifts you the Holy Spirit and God, the Holy Spirit testifies inside of you concerning Christ, the truth concerning Christ. So that you now, when you read, behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. When you read that, there is something going on inside of you. The Spirit says, he is the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. And the net result is that now your lips proclaim, he's the Lamb of God who takes away my sin. When you read in John chapter 4 of the interaction with Jesus and the woman at the well, and you see that he says to her, if you knew who I was, you would be asking for living water, and I would give it to you, and you would never thirst again. If the Spirit is not working inside of you, as an unbeliever, you look at that count and you say, Jesus is a funny guy. He says that there's water available that means I never thirst again. That's the only response there. But if you have the spirit inside of you, the spirit says, Jesus gives living water. And the net result is that you say, Jesus, give me the living water. And on and on it goes. Can you see what a gift the Holy Spirit is with this just one ministry that he performs in an ongoing way in your life? And I would say this, pastorally, if you are in a position where there are doubts in your mind concerning Christ, if you're in a position where you don't enjoy assurance, where you aren't certain about your own salvation, one of the very best things you can do practically is to open the Bible and to read prayerfully. What I mean by that is that you open God's word and you say, God, the Holy Spirit, testify to me the truth of Scripture. And you read And you read until you read, as the Puritans would say. You pray until you pray. Just read God's word until you read God's word. 
and trust that the Holy Spirit is pleased to honor that request. One of the interesting things about the doctrine of assurance is that it is not guaranteed and it is not guaranteed in an ongoing way. So if you're here tonight, confident of who you are in Christ, confident that you do indeed abide, don't take that for granted. It could very well be that in years to come, for whatever reason, you don't enjoy assurance. It can come and it can go. And there are many different things that might bring about a lack of assurance in your life. And if you know and understand now that possibly in days to come, God would work in your life. The external circumstances might be so desperate that you start to question who you truly are. Just remember that the spirit works in testimony with the word. And one of the best things you can do is simply to open the Bible and to read prayerfully. Now, there's the, the testimony. The Spirit has given it to us. We find it in the word. The three agree. John even shows the reasonableness of believing this testimony. Verse 9, if we receive the testimony of men, the testimony of God is greater we receive the testimony of men concerning all manner of things every day. And John says God's testimony is greater. How much more should we receive it readily? He is showing here the reasonable nature of belief in Christ. And with that, he segues to his crossroads. Verse 10, whoever believes, whoever believes in the Son of God has this testimony in himself. He has received the testimony. Whoever has not has made God a liar. So you have to realize that if you reject this testimony, there are implications. One of which is that you have now made God to be a liar. God has given you the testimony. And if you reject it, you have made God a liar. And that is something that you need to come to terms with. The fact that you will stand before him one day and you will need to give an answer for having rejected his testimony. The syntax of this verse is very terse. This is not flowing poetry. Far from it. John is creating a division in a very intentional way. You've either received the testimony or you've made God a liar. There's your two options. And to reject the testimony has more implications, namely that you don't have the son. This is the testimony that God has given us eternal life. This life is in his son. So if you've rejected the testimony, you don't have Jesus. And finally, the implication would be that you don't even have life. Whoever has the son has life. Whoever does not have the son, the son of God, Jesus Christ, the savior does not have life. John is writing to a community of Christians that he knows I believe he's been with them, but he's not assuming that everybody there has Jesus, believes upon Jesus in the way that Jesus demands to be believed upon, in the fullest sense, in the way that you have oxygen. And one thing I would stress is the simplicity of the task. Do you have Jesus? Have you received Jesus in the way that he demands? It's not a difficult task. The issue is not one of knowledge. It's a, it's a simple testimony. I was reminded afresh this week of one of my favorite testimonies of salvation, maybe one of the simplest that I've ever heard of. 
a man by the last name of Thorpe who lived at the same time as Whitfield. Thorpe was a, a member of a group that hated Whitfield. They hated his preaching. They hated what he stood for. They hated the gospel. And they did all that they could to disrupt his ministry. They would show up to Whitfield's sermons and, and make noise and try and distract. One evening, that group were meeting in a pub. And Thorpe had somehow got a copy of one of Whitfield's sermons. And the story goes that he did a really good impersonation of Whitfield. So what he did to amuse his friends was to stand up and begin to impersonate their enemy. And he did it through reading Whitfield's sermon. Halfway through the sermon, he sat down because he just got Jesus. Through making fun of Whitfield, through preaching Whitfield's sermon as a means of mockery, he was saved. He understood in an instant who Jesus was. And I thought about that maybe the simplest most uncomplicated testimony of salvation I've heard of. What did he know at that moment? Not a lot. But one thing he knew for certain is that Jesus was the perfect savior. The gospel of John and first John don't allow for lots of different kinds of belief. They allow for one kind of belief alone. It is the belief that accepts Jesus to be the perfect savior. And it might be that you've been here for some time and that you look very much like you've believed in Jesus, but you have not believed upon him in the way that first John speaks of. That in some way you've stood at the sidelines and you've affirmed everything that's going on. In some way, in order to be accepted and to, to look like you belong, you've said, I approve. You've never received Jesus. John is drawing a crossroads as he comes to the close of the letter. And he simply asks the question, have you got Jesus? Let's pray. Our Father, we are so thankful for the testimony that you have borne concerning your son. It is so simple. The gospel is profound. It is complex. And yet at the same time, it is wonderfully simple. Jesus is who he said he was. Truly God, truly man, come to die for sinners. And his death was effective. And we know that there may be some who lack assurance, don't have assurance because they don't have Christ. And you know our hearts, and I do pray that tonight you would quicken the hearts of those that don't know Jesus in this way unto repentance and eternal life. And Father, that you would lead us all in the path of unending, abounding joy as we give our lives to looking, seeing, beholding the Savior. Thank you for his life and his death. We pray in his name. Amen. You are listening to Timeless Truth Today. The Apostle John was growing old. And he may have felt that time was slipping away from his brethren scattered around in early churches. Many first century believers might have been desperate because life was hard, and still others might have felt it necessary to compromise with the world for survival. Christ had promised his disciples they would receive power from the Holy Spirit, and they did. But life under duress can rob you of your joy and assurance if you're not in tune with the Spirit making us doubt we really have Christ's indwelling power. 
If you're in a similar situation, follow Pastor Paul's suggestion. Focus your heart on the person of Christ in Scripture. Start with the four Gospels. He's the one who came to die in order to show us joy in living. Timeless Truth Today is a teaching ministry of Pastor Paul Twiss, a listener-supported outreach of Bethany Bible Church in Thousand Oaks, California. If you live in the area and don't have a home church, you're always invited to worship with us at Bethany Bible Church. The Sunday morning service begins at 1030, and the church is located at 200 West Bethany Court in Thousand Oaks. Hope you'll join us on Monday for part six in our continuing series, Living the Assured Life. I'm Matt Williams. Have a great weekend, and thank you for listening to Timeless Truth Today.